Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on May 30th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On June 5th or 6th, depending on where you are, you'll have the rare chance to see a transit of the planet Venus. Your next shot after this one's going to be the year 2117, so good luck with that. With the transit coming up, I called Mark Anderson. He's the author of the book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun, about the great efforts to track the transits of Venus in the 1760s. Back then, it was less celestial sightseeing and more hard science. Here's part one of my phone conversation with Mark. Mark Anderson, great to talk to you today. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's my pleasure. It's a, a fascinating book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun. Um, it has a certain literary sensibility to it, which I think is great. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about your background? Because you bring a, a, a style that's maybe just a little unusual for a science book. Well, um, my book, first and foremost, I wanted it to be the story, this amazing adventure uh, that is combining both the science, the cutting-edge science, and the incredible stories, these odysseys that these explorers and scientists, um, you know, un- under underwent to to really cross much of the planet to find the distance to the sun and, and many other things as well. But um, so I so I was approaching that kind of from a little bit of you know, a nonfiction angle and a little bit of kind of Patrick O'Brien, if you will, adventure, you know, novel kind of approach. Um, so my uh, my own background is uh, I have a graduate degree in, in astrophysics and studied physics and astronomy as an undergraduate. And I've been a science and technology journalist for the last 12 or so years. Um I wrote, uh, I've written a book about Shakespeare, so I have not exclusively written about science, uh, science and technology, but, um, but I've written for, um, for, for Scientific American, Wired and Discover and a lot of familiar places. Um, and so, so I was bringing a little bit of kind of the storytelling sensibility and, um, but also wanting to stay true to the science. And it really does read like one of those Patrick O'Brien books. It, it's a lot of fun to read. But let's let's define some terms. Let's go back. You talked about cutting-edge science. This is cutting-edge science of the 1760s. And first, explain to everybody what a transit of Venus is. The transit of Venus has been called the rarest eclipse. It's, it happens less than twice per century. And what it is, is um, the planet Venus briefly passing directly in front of the sun. And that takes about six hours. From our vantage point. From our vantage point, yeah. What was it in the 1760s? And actually, we go back to really Halley, who in the 20, 30 years before that, realized the wealth of information that this celestial event would be able to provide. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it kind of gave dimension to the universe. I mean, the third dimension. We, there is no way of, of of measuring physical distance scales. So there's no immediate way of measuring these these distance scales out in you know uh, out there amongst the stars and the planets. So this was a long-standing puzzle for for centuries, millennia, really. Um, is not only how far away is the sun, how far away are, are all the objects that, that we see. 
we can't measure the distance to the stars, and we haven't been able to do that, or we weren't able to do that until the 19th century. But um, as far as the near universe is concerned, um, finding the distance to the sun and the size scale of the planets in the solar system, this was a really big deal because it meant, in some ways, understanding what uh, you know, what our universe was made of, what it looked like, and 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 where everything could be found. So, so this was an essential problem in science and, and astronomy in the 18th century was the precise, was the exact science of the age. So it was where a lot of the great, you know, scientific minds, both scientific and mathematical minds, had trained a lot of their firepower on this big question. And it was Edmund Halley who realized, wow, we could solve all these big problems in one fell swoop by um, triangulating all those distances from one measurement. Now it's one. Well, okay, it's a measurement on one day, but you've got to take it from multiple locations on Earth. And sometimes those locations turned out to be really far-flung places. Um, the bottom line is it's kind of somewhere up to up in the Arctic and somewhere down in the tropics. That's at the very least what you need. Right. You have to go to the worst places in the world to do it, or maybe the best, <laughs> or maybe the best. Right. But either way, it's going to be extreme conditions, and. Uh, I want to talk about Halley for a second. It's a little bit ironic because Halley's Comet is this event that, that happens regularly, and many people will live their entire lives between two visits of Halley's Comet. And it was Halley who realized that the next transits of Venus would would be able to provide all this information, and he also realized that there was no way he would be able to live to see that. Yeah, Halley um, was... Uh, uh, a brilliant, brilliant man, in some ways, kind of overshadowed by um, by Newton, who, of course, you know, one of the great geniuses of all time. Um, but he was Newton's buddy, and and Halley realized that once you take some of the mechanics that Newton and others had pioneered, and you 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 run the clock forwards, um, you can really you can forecast with astonishing precision decades in advance where everything is going to be, um, and and Halley discovered that, you know, not only is the Venus transit perfect for solving these big questions in science, that there's going to be two of them coming in, 17, in the summer of 1761 and then the summer of 1769. In the early 1700s, around 1715, 1716, Halley gets on the bandwagon. He starts saying, you know, telling all of his colleagues and people across Europe, learned people across Europe, you know, look, we've got to get on the ball here because we can solve one of the most fundamental problems, you know, in in uh, in the physical sciences with this, you know, with this one day, if, if, if we get it right. Um, the, the other part of the story, I should say, Steve, is is that um, the, there are science histories of the Venus transit, and those are really important for, I mean, studying kind of the, the, the history of the science is important, but I found, I felt that there was there was kind of an elephant in the room in the uh, in these stories, and that was kind of part of the story. So that's part that the, the part that I wanted to also bring in, which is navigation, which is the problem of you know crossing the ocean, <laughs> crossing all the oceans, and sending all your ships not just, you know, to a, a port, you know, a few hundred miles away, but, you know, maybe halfway across the, the world. This was a tremendously su- 
you know, significant, substantial problem both for um, for militaries, for kings, for captains of of industry, you could call it in in those days. And astronomy was the was the way that that um, appeared to be, you know, there appeared to be poised to to solve that problem in the 1760s, right in the middle of these two transits. There was one in 1761 and 1769. The astronomers, a lot of the characters in this book, had kind of cracked this this puzzle wide open. And so it turns out that the Venus transit voyages are also this perfect test bed for these solutions to the to the navigation problem, finding longitude at sea. And so what the what the astronomers had developed is you you might call it an 18th century GPS system that using the moon as the global positioning satellite. You you use the moon and some uh, some really clever um, tables in a book called the Nautical Almanac that was published every year from from 1767 onward. You use the moon's exact position in the sky. You, you figure you figure that out with you know your your navigator on your ship wherever you are on the earth finds the moon's exact position in the sky and then he looks it up in his um, in his nautical almanac and that tells him Greenwich time and then you compare Greenwich time to local time and you have your longitude. That is a that's a humongous deal. I mean that that really in some ways changes. Uh, you know, that, that changes so much of the story. It's no coincidence that that the great solutions to the navigational problem coincide with the world really being opened up in in substantial ways to everything from world trade to to world empires. The story has everything in it. It's got commerce. It's got politics. It's got science. It's got religion. It's it's everything is crossing into everything else, and that's part of what makes it such a compelling read. Uh, let's let's talk just briefly again about the science, and then we can go into some of the drama of the expeditions. But l- let's talk in a little bit of detail about what you're actually doing when you have these multiple expeditions in various parts of the globe, and they're all watching the transit as it's happening, and then they take records of what they're seeing. And how does that all together, when that information is all compiled, how does that let people figure out how far we are from the sun? The fundamental measurement that needs to be that needed to be performed was timing down to the second, if 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 possible, timing the exact duration of the Venus transit from these different locations on the Earth. Because I, I said it's about six hours, but it's you know it varies depending on where you are. And so if you're up in the Arctic, you, you measure that it might be five hours and 50 minutes. If you're down in Tahiti, where Captain Cook was in 1769, it might be more like, um, you know, five hours and I forget the exact number, but something like five hours and, you know, 20 minutes. So, so those numbers, when, when you compare them, you can do, and listeners should appreciate, you, you don't have to, I mean, I, I don't take people through, that in the in the story itself. Right, that's in the appendix. That there is a technical appendix for for people who you know who can handle you know who are interested in kind of the equations and, and some of that stuff. I do get into the technical stuff. There's a technical appendix where I discuss that in more detail. But um, but suffice it to say that you can approach this as essentially a, a trigonometry problem, and then you have to add layers of complication if you want to get it exact. But what you're making is a big triangle where 
you are um, where one end of the triangle is Venus, the other end, another end of the triangle is your tropical location of measuring the transit, and the third end of the triangle is your Arctic location. So it's, it looks like a tiny, tiny wedge of pie. And so if you know the distance between those two locations on Earth, then and, and you know the angle, then you can find the distance to Venus. And once you know the distance to Venus, you can find the distance to every other planet and to the sun. And the time it takes Venus to cross the sun from your vantage point gives you that angle. That's right. Now, you tell you say in the book how many slices of pie you could get at that angle. Do you remember the exact figure? Um, I, <laughs> I didn't know this was going to be on the test. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I can I can look it up. I, I, it was no, something I rem- like one hundred forty four thousand. That that's what it was. So you if you could slice your pie into one hundred forty four thousand pieces, that's the kind of angle we're determining here with these measurements from around the globe, which is pretty mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I should note, by the way, I just looked it up. Um, so when Captain Cook, there, 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 there were lots of these voyages um, and lots of these observations. And to bring the story kind of down to a human level where people can appreciate and relate to the characters and, you know, and follow each story, I decided to just concentrate on three. And so Captain Cook's is one of those expeditions, and he found that it was about five hours and 30 minutes. Um, whereas the Arctic expedition, this is led by an, an Austrian team, we can get to that in a moment, but they found five hours and 53 minutes and 14 seconds. Um, so anyway, th- th- that gives a sense. It's, if you can get those numbers precisely, then, then you can get the distance even better. But, um, but that, that gives you a sense that, that it's, not, it's not the same for every observer. Yeah, let's talk about some of the expeditions. There, I mean, there, there were dozens and dozens, but you, as you say, you concentrated on just a handful. Let's talk about those. Briefly yeah. describe what the different ones were like and, and the dangers that they faced. Yeah, absolutely. The, Steve, the, the, the stories are, are, um, are quite, you know, it's, it's quite incredible. One reviewer said Mimsy scientists need, need not apply to travel to these locations required sort of, I don't know, mastering an obstacle course of some of the gravest perils of, of the age. And so we, I, I was looking at really three. Captain Cook is one of them. The, there's a French team led by this, uh, led by this explorer named Jean-Baptiste Chop de Roche, and he was traveling to the Baja Peninsula. And then there's an Austrian team led by a Jesuit friar by the name of Hell, if you can believe it. Um, and he is going up to one of the northernmost towns in, uh, in Europe. And so each of these expeditions are facing just tremendous obstacles in, in getting there, in getting their data, and coming back home. There are many others of, you know, there were many other observations there were a number of other expeditions, but I, I felt to to do justice to this story, I had to bring it down to a level that that, that that a reader could keep track of, so that you know you're not introducing 25 different characters and all that stuff. Right, it's not so, an encyclopedia. It's a it's a story about representative voyages and expeditions that these particular individuals make, and I'm sure the other ones that you don't talk about had equal or 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 worse conditions that they had to deal with. Well, 
I, I, I guess I'd say this much that, that it's, um, that, that I kind of had, I had three criteria really for finding those, the best representative expeditions. First of all, they had to have tremendous results. They had to be fascinating characters and they had to have an amazing adventure getting mm-hmm. them back. And so those three expeditions were Captain Cook's first voyage on the HMS Endeavor to Tahiti and then this French trip, French and Spanish trip to Mexico. They faced, <laughs> they didn't realize it when they were shipping out, but they, um, when they arrived in Mexico, they soon discovered that their, the place that they'd be observing from was experiencing an outbreak of typhus that was killing people left and right, and yet they decided to stay put. They, they decided, even though they, they were risking their very lives to gather this data, they decided to stay put. Um, and then uh, these Austrian uh, these Austrian and Hungarian explorers going up to above the Arctic Circle, some of the some of the people that that they encountered on their way north um, up into the Arctic just figured they were crazy because to travel through the Norwegian Sea at the late time of year that that they were traveling was was practically suicidal. And um, I I was actually able to bring into English for the first time um, their travel journals, and it's amazing. It is so incredible, Steve. It's, I mean, every day is a new ordeal. And, um, and so, uh, so I, I don't know which, which one of those you want to talk about or, or well, I'll tell you the one, well, one of the interesting things is, as you say, they had to have good results or great results. So that leaves out all the people. You got to keep in mind that when when you prepare for your expedition in 1769 or 1761, maybe you prepare for a few years, you have one shot here or one shot in 1761 and one more in 1769. If it's a cloudy day where you go, you're screwed. You're screwed. That's it. And if it's 1769, there's not going to be another one. Maybe your grandkids can go check out the next one, but you're not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah, no, there, there were, there were people who also, on, you know, who, who went on these expeditions to these far-flung places in the world and, um, it didn't, didn't work out for them. Let's talk, let's talk about Shap because I'll tell you why. For, for me personally, in 1991, I sailed to the Baja to see a total eclipse of the sun and I was on a luxury cruise ship. With midnight buffets and uh, very nice accommodations and an astronomy faculty, why don't you contrast that with Shap, who went to basically the same location to see this transit of Venus? Wow. Yeah. Well, it's nothing like that. I'll tell you that much. Um, so the craft that they that they crossed the Atlantic Ocean in. Um, well, first of all, they <laughs> they. they now they're, they're traveling to Mexico, and it's not just a matter of getting your, your passports in order. First of all, they're dealing with um, the King of Spain, who has invited these French explorers to come observe the transit of Venus from one of his colonies, and that was uh, that, that that involved a a major um, diplomatic. Uh, it was it was a, a, a major diplomatic deal to to get that in place, and this King of Spain was potentially going to invite the the Brits and there was going to there was like a, a um, 
I think it was an English Jesuit in Italy who was going to make it all happen. And in fact, if that English Jesuit had gotten, had secured that expedition, there, there might not be a Captain Cook <laughs> in, in, you know, immortalized in legend because the English would have had their expedition to the tropics. Um, as history would have it, that, um, that deal fell apart with the English. And so Spain turned to France and said, Hey, you want this? And France said, you bet. And so, um, so the, so these French explorers travel to Spain and they wind up in this crazy bureaucratic nightmare, just for starters. This is before they've even really launched. And they are stuck in Cadiz and then stuck, um, at an, at a way station. And it looks for a while like they are not even going to make it across the Atlantic Ocean, let alone cross Mexico to get to the Baja Peninsula. Nevertheless, uh, after weeks and weeks of just this horrendous ordeal, they get to, um, they, they finally get to Veracruz, uh, in, on the east coast of Mexico. And th- this was, this was no small, this was no small accomplishment because the ships that were available for them to cross by that point, it was getting so late in the game that the French, that these explorers had to take anything they could find. So they get this tiny little craft that gets bounced around by every little wave and it it's it's just this it's this astonishing uh just transatlantic crossing and then they get to veracruz and there's a hurricane that hits and it it practically ends everything um the the hurricane um there was a very i think a very smart pilot on on board the uh on board the this this little brigantine that um that that moves the the ship into the lee of one of the big um of this big fort and that probably saved the expedition right there then they get then they offload after the hurricane and they start crossing mexico and by the end of it by as they're as they're they have to go through mexico city and it's this it's a it's a wild uh just going through mexico city is is a wild part of the story and then going west from mexico city they are going uh, traveling these these paths that are known for these roughneck bandits who regularly you know rob and accost travelers um and they have all this precious astronomical equipment yeah so they they're risking being held up by you know banditos along the way and then they get to the final stretch which is the gulf of california the the body of water between mainland mexico and the baja peninsula and then they get stuck in these doldrums that it looks like they're going to be it looks like they are going to be sitting in the middle of um the the gulf of california on june 3rd it looks you know on june 3rd 1769 it looks like they're going to miss it after all of this ordeal and yet there was uh, this fortuitous breeze that, that that pushed them across and they landed with just i don't remember how many days to spare but it was precious few and then they find out when they get there that there is this deadly epidemic that is laying waste to the the both the indigenous population and to the missionaries um, it was mostly Jesuit missionaries who were uh, Jesuit and Franciscan missionaries who who were at the Baja, you know, who were the Europeans who were uh, in that region. And they decide, well, this astronomer decides, we've come too far. We we have to risk it. People were, you know, all the people on the expedition were concerned, and for good reason, because most of them did not get out of there alive. Now, that's one third of it. The, there's another third, which is the English expedition. Now, I mentioned that the English might have 
had their opportunity in crossing, you know, in, in observing from Mexico. And if that had happened, they wouldn't have needed to outfit, you know, this ship uh, and pull this guy out of obscurity, this L- Lieutenant James Cook, who becomes, of course, the Captain Cook of... of Seafaring Lord. Yeah. But, um, but nevertheless, that, that the, the deal falls through, and so they need to find something. They don't have much. The English don't have much. The Royal Society really doesn't know where they're going to send their ship. And then, just a year and a half before the transit itself, another English ship lands and says, hey, we found this new island out in the South Pacific. It was called King George's Island. They they named it King George's Island at the time. We today call it Tahiti. And (laughs) one of the things that that this, um, this was called the HMS Dolphin, one of the things that that the HMS Dolphin discovered was that um, the, well, they they found the same thing that, that Paul Gauguin found when he traveled to Tahiti you know, more than a century later, that the, um, the how, how to put well, it, let I mean, me put the, it. the mores of, of, of Tahiti were very different, and the, 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 the kind of the, the... I was going to quote Animal House, actually. Yeah, okay, quote Animal House. That might where, be uh, early in the movie, uh, they're, they're trying to set up one of the guys, and he says, um, well, she should be pretty, but we're willing to trade looks for a certain morally casual attitude. <laughs> Well put. Well, um, so these these explorers on the HMS Dolphin who had landed there, that they were the first you know English ship to land there. What they found is that the 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 native tribe, the the Tahitians, were very intrigued with all the with the iron that these um, explorers were bringing them, like the nails and the the bullets and and really anything made of iron. Like the instruments, <laughs> yeah, the instruments too. Instruments, yeah, and um, and so because there really was no uh, prohibition or very little prohibition, you know, against what we call prostitution, um, that iron quickly became the currency for sex, and so it was said that that the HMS Dolphin almost fell apart in the harbor because <laughs> there were so many randy sailors who were pulling nails out of the ship. Um, and and you know pulling like um, hammock hooks and things like that out of the ship. Um, Captain Cook wanted you know did not want this kind of anarchy and he was not going to put up with this kind of anarchy. <laughs> Nevertheless, he he stocked a few extra barrels of nails just in case. We'll be back with part two of our conversation with Mark Anderson, author of the book The Day the World Discovered the Sun, on May thirty first. Check out our website, www.scientificamerican.com, for lots of info about the next transit of Venus coming your way on June 5th or 6th, depending on where you are. And Mark's website is discoveredsun.com. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.